This is Quarantine Conversations. Brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth and our host... Hello, I'm Daniel Gowerbach. Is Daniel. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on the podcast, we're talking to... Dr. Craig Berger. Today we're looking at scientists of color in atmospheric sciences and speaking to a member of that community. Our interviewee today is Dr. Craig Paku, uh, an atmospheric scientist. Um, now, I should say that this is kind of a, a reprisal of our interview because uh, <laughs> Craig, I did try interviewing you, um, well I did interview you about a month ago, uh, mm-hmm. but I only recorded the first five seconds. So. Mm-hmm for being so incredibly gracious and uh, mm-hmm. agreeing to sit down for another interview. And I, I've got to say the first interview was amazing. It's going to be one of the lost treasures of humanity because <laughs> no one will ever hear it. <laughs> you know what, when you said reprisal, I just think of like when you're in a theater show and they do a reprisal, like one of the big numbers, the only difference is that nobody knew what the big number was. And so because <laughs> of that, it's just a memory that only myself and you will know but nobody will ever experience. So let's just hope that the reprisal was as good as the real thing. And if not, we've tried our best. Hello, how are you? Well, I was gonna say like, you know, the first one was so good. Um, if it weren't as good as it was, uh, I probably would have just slunk away in, um, in disgrace, <laughs> but it was so good that I want to capture it a second time. <laughs> yeah, and we're also making sure that the record button is on this entire time. Absolutely. Side. So hopefully it will be there. So yes. I think oh. that answers uh, my final question, which is uh, how has COVID impacted your, um, your work? And it certainly has because now all our interviews are on Zoom and we have to watch the record button. Yes, indeed. And it's really interesting where, um, so I saw this on Twitter the other day where there was somebody who was telling me how uh, one of their colleagues still doesn't understand how Zoom works. <laughs> and in the nicest way possible, this has been our life for around six months now. So if you still don't know how Zoom works now, there's no hope for you at this point. <laughs> because it's really strange where a year ago, the idea of us having Zoom calls, the idea, like regular Zoom calls, the idea that we would be having um, virtual conferences. I remember when conferences was like, we would never go virtual. We can't go virtual. There's no way for us to go virtual. And then uh, Miss Rona decided to come along and pay a visit. And she's like, I like this place, so I'm going to stay for a bit. (laughs) So, like here in the UK, for example, we've now been told that the likelihood of us going back to any form of what we remembered as normality is kind of non-existent at this stage. So Mm -hmm. it's now going, rather than seeing this as a hindrance, how can we use this as an opportunity? And case in point, this type of interview probably wouldn't have happened had COVID occurred. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I should point out, you are not uh, with, the, with UBC or the Department of Earth, Ocean, or Atmospheric Sciences. You're actually uh, at the University of Leeds. Yes, I am in the, I was about to say, sunny United Kingdom. We're usually not that sunny. We're quite a rainy country. The joys of being a mid-latitude country. Um, but yes, I'm based in the UK. I have visited UCB once. And um, when I got the opportunity to do this podcast, I said yes, because uh, 
the museum that you work at, I actually visited before. And I just thought it was so cool that you reached out to me. You're like, would you like to do this? But I was like, yes, of course. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> so now I'm really excited to be here, even if it is the second time around. But we don't need to know about that. <laughs> Absolutely. And I've got to say, the way that uh, the reason I reached out to you is because uh, your Twitter feed is so amazing. Um, and you're posting some really amazing photographs of your baking. So, um, yeah, that's another accomplishment. Yeah, so let me just try. Let me just try to recall. So about a month and a bit ago, well, actually no. So two months ago, I had this plan that I was going to do a pride themed bake along, shall we call it? So I had three or four different pride bakes. I was going to use it to kind of test my skills whilst also kind of demonstrated how you could do creativity because the general gist of it is that most people whenever they do pride baking they tend to usually do like cakes mm -hmm. they, they do like the standard rainbow cake and i went everybody's gonna do that let's do something different <laughs> so the particular pose that dan um is discussing in particular is in relation to some rainbow croissants that i made now I follow a number of different baking channels and one of them had a recipe for rainbow croissants and I went, let me adapt this recipe a bit, let me try this. I decided to make them on the hottest day for June as a kind of uh, spoiler alert, croissants, hot croissant, warm day, they don't tend to go very well together. But somehow I did them and then they looked quite good. Um, I'm very critical about my own baking, so I put them on Twitter anyway. And uh, my Twitter page exploded, <laughs> is the best way to explain it. That, um, you came across my uh, posts, but then I then had an organisation called Elite Daily, who had somehow put me down as one of the best Pride posts of 2020. Aww. And I just went, what's going on? <laughs> I was so confused. I just went, how would earth? Has this exploded so much and um it I, I was like all i just did was make some rainbow croissants and apparently rainbow croissants is more fascinating because in my mind i thought somebody else must have done this right apparently not many people do it because croissants is something you just don't do very often and uh here we are now <laughs> I liked how you led into that story too. Um, leave it to the atmospheric scientists to critique the atmospheric conditions um, mm. when they're baking. Yeah, I mean, if I so if from a so here's the thing: I like the sun, despite the fact that humid heat is a hell on earth, which I'm like, I'd rather not. Um, I like the summer. I'm a summer. I'm a summer-born child. The summer is what I do. Um, but with um but the thing is is like when it comes to baking really you want your environment to be as cold as possible because it then gives you the maximum amount of time to actually kind of, it gives you the maximum opportunity to not mess up so mm. when it comes to chocolate work you want it to be cool when it comes to pastry work you want it to be cool bread is probably the only exception and even that can be questionable so Generally speaking, is you don't make pastry in the summer. That's just a no-go. And uh, as somebody uh, said to me, it's like I like to put myself through pain. So I was like, I don't care, it's summer. I'm still doing it anyway. <laughs> <laughs>
I regret my thought process sometimes. But then again, I've done a PhD and that was um, a stressful period, but I can now look back on it in relative fond memories. That's the best way to describe it. And you just graduated from your PhD, didn't you? So technically, I have graduated. And you may be going, why technically? Because as of two weeks ago, I should have had a graduation ceremony where I would have been in my floppy hat, being able to throw it into the air, like how they're doing all the pictures. And uh, I would have walked down the stage, picked my certificate, taken all the photos. Yeah, that didn't happen. My degree certificate will be coming through the post. I will be graduating in absentia. Um, and I will also be, um, we're going to have a graduation, a graduation celebration sometime next year when they're allowed to have big groups. But the reality is that um, I've got family um, coming from like Ghana. So that's going to be something I need to kind of monitor as well. Right. So yeah, so technically I graduated. I've now Dr. Boker officially. I just now need to wait for my certificate to come to the post. And once that happens, then I can then be like, I can change my bank cards. I can change everything. Although when I did pass my, um, when I got my corrections official, then I did change all my titles pretty much. Because <laughs> that's the same thing. Absolutely. You've earned it at yeah. this point. <laughs> hmm. Like, I remember when there were some people who were like, oh, I have a PhD, but I don't use my title because I feel like um, medical doctors need to have the title over us people who've got PhDs. So let me just put some like fact changing in there really quickly. Mm-hmm. One, medical doctors actually got the, P- um, the doctor title after people who had PhDs. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is that a PhD is not exactly an easy fit. <laughs> no. <laughs> so it's not one of the, I think it's one of those things where when I hear people who go, oh, well, medical doctors deserve them over. I'm like, you've done neither a medical degree nor a PhD. So therefore you're in no position to critique it. Um, plus also for me, I think that when somebody states that they have a PhD in a certain field, I see them as the expert in that field. And so therefore, in a way, it kind of gives a bit of... <sighs> It's really bad because you shouldn't say that they should have more credibility over somebody who doesn't have a PhD in that same field. But the reality is that people do still feel that. So I was like, I've earned my title. I'm using my title. Um, That said, if I am booking a holiday, I never state my title ever because the worst fear I have is that they go, is there a doctor on the plane? They see, they scan through, they see doctor, and I go, look, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm an atmospheric scientist who also dabbles in climate, okay? I don't save lives. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's my worst nightmare, which is why I never declare it on any form of like transport, ever. That's, no, no. That's very clever. It's not a, um, a conundrum I, I'd associate with, mm. um, with a PhD. Yeah, and it's one of those things where, thinking back on it, so it's really interesting because I recently... Um, so just for some context, so I've been on Twitter technically since February of 2013. Mm-hmm. However, it wasn't until last June that when I started using it properly. And the reason I started using it was because I was in the write-up period last summer. So I used Twitter as a way to vent my inner process. Mm-hmm. Now recently, somebody was like, when was the actual date that you started using Twitter properly? And I was like, I decided, let me go through my Twitter account. And I remember it was summer of last year, so I had to kind of scroll back. And as I was scrolling back, I was just reading the tweets that I did during the write-up period. 
And let's just say that I was intense is a nice way to describe it. And a year later, now that I'm no longer in that state of shock, shall I call it, mm-hmm. I now see a number of other people who are in the write-up period and I see their tweets of our lightning go, that was me. I recognize that writing. That was me. That's terrifying. Um, I feel part of the reason I mentioned this is because uh, a PhD is sort of like a journey and towards the end, I like to describe it as a sprint. Mm-hmm. Even though you've been running this marathon this entire time. And now I'm at that point where because I feel like I've, because I've gained a PhD, I do also feel a bit more confident in my own science even though I'm not doing anything differently. I'm also finding as well that people now come to me for the weirdest requests. So quite recently I got asked to give an expert opinion on a paper. Now, I feel like, I don't know if this should be on record, but here's the thing. So I do aerosol modeling, but with aerosol modeling, it varies so much that the aerosol modeling that was described in this paper was the bit that I don't touch because I just, it's not like I don't know how to do it. It's just, I never have a reason to do it. And he wanted my expert opinion on this paper. And I genuinely came up going, I feel terrified. On the one hand, this is a really good opportunity for me to be able to discuss this paper because I actually do know some bits. But on the other hand, I was also like, I don't know anything about all of these things. And someone was like, just rise to the challenge and do it. Two years ago, I wouldn't have had the confidence to be able to at least attempt to think about it. Whereas now I went, actually, this is a good opportunity to demonstrate that actually I do know what I'm talking about in my science. So, yes. Now, okay, this is something that I always struggle to explain to to kids uh, and even understand myself. What are aerosols? I mean, we use that term. I always just say it's just crap in the air, right? (laughs) Um, So, pre PhD Craig, when I said that aerosols was the stuff that comes out of a can, because that's what we're always taught. But aerosols are simply a fancy way of saying airborne particles within the air. Okay. So the most typical example is pollution. Um, So stuff that comes out of cars, stuff that comes out of buildings. Um, But then you've also got like natural um aerosols so this could be considered like pollen this could be considered as sea salt that's suspended in the air and these aerosols are very important both for climate and atmospheric sciences so the general gist is that too long don't read aerosols are small airborne particles suspended in the air perfect i think that's a great uh explanation (laughs) yes and the reason i say it like this is because when someone was trying to explain to me aerosols when they first met me, they said they went, oh, it's like, they, they went into too much detail really quickly. And um, as well as uh, atmospheric climate scientist, and I use both because the way my research is kind of doubled, it's kind of doubled into both now. Um, I find that science communication is very key. And if, for example, you have an idea or concept, the better you know the concept, the better you know how to communicate that idea mm-hmm. so something like aerosol is i heard it a lot for two three years but until i understood what it was i was like oh it's simply just that okay so that's how i now define it and aerosols is is very important for the work that i do <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, speaking of which, this work is um, is not one of the things that we we grow up thinking about. Um, like yeah. when we're growing up, we don't uh, dress up as a climate scientist. Um, mm. So, how did you get into this? Did you always want to be a climate scientist? <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'm laughing. Um, I fell into meteorology by accident. <laughs> So let me give you a backstory. Um, so back at school, um, so when I did my GCSE, so that would be like uh, pre-high school, I think, for you guys? 16, A16. Yeah, so A16, I mostly focused on science subjects and math subjects. Um, so I did like maths, I did science, um, I found that I was also like really big into like the creative arts, which is probably the reason why I do a lot of baking now because that allows me to do that. Mm -hmm. And then when I then turned 16, then you have the option of specializing in certain subjects. So I specialized in like the maths and sciences basically. And I went to university and did a maths degree and I got into mathematical modeling a lot. So um, someone asked me recently what mathematical modeling entails. Imagine that you have a physical system and you want to be able to predict what that system will do in say five minutes time mm. you can model that using maths and then afterwards then if you solve the equations involved in that model then you're then able to then predict what's going to happen in five minutes time so the best example would be if i had a car and it was driving x miles an hour i could model that mathematically and then work out what distance would be traveled within a certain time period that's mathematical modeling sort of in its nutshell now the what happened um after i finished my undergrad was that um, and i'm going to put this on record i started the masters and i hated it so i dropped out and i went to local government for a year and <laughs> i say this because a number of people think that i have a, P um, a master's because i also have a phd so um i don't um, and I felt like a fraud for a very long time, but I was still interested in mathematical modeling. And so when I then applied to the University, the University of Leeds, I applied for a fluid dynamics PhD master's combo. So here we have these programs that are known as CDTs, known as um, Centers of Doctoral Training. And what this particular program entails that you do a you do a master's for the first year and then you do a phd for the for the last three years now that was the program i originally applied to but when i got interviewed i had a guy called doug parker who is in the school of meteorology here at leeds who really liked the work that i did and they needed somebody to do the phd that i ended up finishing so they're long story short a lot of shuffling and stuff i ended up doing that phd so i had no intention to apply to do meteorology up until the opportunity was presented to me and i went this sounds cool i've always been interested in the weather and the way how the world works but because i never did geography um past the age of 16 i generally thought there was no way that i would ever get into it and uh that's how I got into my field of research. So hence why I said I got into the by accident. <laughs> and I think I tell people this because a lot of, um, whenever people tell like people, whenever people 
tell others about their kind of career journey is very linear. I did this, I did this, I went to school for the focus of wanting to do this. I did this, I did this, I did this. I didn't have that in that when I was 14, I was set on going to music college. Oh. And then I got to 16, realizing that the standard that I needed to do to apply for music college wasn't going to be good enough, but I used to also enjoy maths. I then went through a phase of wanting to become a chemical engineer and then realized I'm not very practical. So that idea died. But I enjoyed the theory of mathematics, and so I pursued going down the maths route. I then went through a phase of wanting to go into investment banking, <laughs> did a half a day internship and realised it just wasn't for me. So that idea died. And so essentially, the way how I, but what I did find through all of the activities that I do enjoy is that I wanted to one, be creative, mm-hmm. and two, figure out how the world worked. So I was really interested in the kind of fundamental theory and then how we could explain that fundamental theory to a number of people. So my PhD looked at fog. Um, to, for the audience, fog is a low-lying cloud that results in your surface visibility decreasing to less than one kilometre. That's the formal definition. But the best way to just think about it is that imagine that you're walking through a cloud, but that cloud is on the surface. That's fog. And you can tell that you're driving through fog because you would only be able to see two lampposts at a time. If you can't see more than that, then you're probably in fog. And what's really interesting about fog is that when I started a PhD, I went, fog, why? Why? Nobody cares about fog. It's, It's like, in meteorology, imagine, you've got all of these different big areas. You've got thunderstorms. You've got major rainfall. You've got, like people going to the Arctic to really understand things, and then there's fog. So fog felt like the abandoned cousin that nobody cared about. But what makes fog so interesting is the fact that there are so many different like physical processes that all interact on a very subtle scale. And you can predict fog to occur and it won't happen. And likewise, you may not predict fog to happen and it will happen. And you may think it will become this thick or you think that the visibility will decrease by this much, but it doesn't do that. And so it's all the kind of small scale stuff that I found quite intriguing. So I just rambled on for about five minutes as to how I ended up going from this to this. I'm so sorry for whoever has to edit it. Uh, I think we're going to use it all. It's interesting. Mm. Uh, and a lot of what you're saying is actually um, echoed with other interviews that I've done. I've heard uh, so many of our, our researchers and faculty talk about uh, feeling like an imposter a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you're talking about dabbling in investment banking and meteorology. They both kind of sound like they're both uh, filled with all these factors and it's just kind of, you know, magic. <laughs> mm. And then uh, you're asking who cares about fog? I mean. You live in what I imagine to be one of the foggiest countries on earth. And you're talking to someone who lives in Vancouver, um, where we probably don't get as much fog, but we may be, you know, second in the running. Um, mm. um, so fun fact, the economical damage due to fog can be comparable in a season. The economical, economical damage due to fog can be comparable to winter storm damages. Oh, that's fact number one. Yeah. 
But also, the other interesting uh, fact about fog, well, it's interesting to me, but it's also kind of morbid, is that because of the potential sudden um, decrease in surface visibility, Mm-hmm. That then means that you then can't plan, which means that you have to. So, like Heathrow, for example, need good fog forecasts. Um, Heathrow Airport. Likewise, if you're driving on the motorway and you've got sudden fog occurring, then that can also lead to sudden crashes because you're not prepared for that. Right. And so, hence, that's why fog is very important. Um, but these aren't things that you think about when you start a PhD, and. I try to go back to what made me decide to go and look at fog. I think for me, there was two things. One, the supervisor who was going to be on the project seemed really cool. And two, the maths also seemed really cool as well, because I was like, this can be solved somehow. I don't know how, but somehow. Um, and through doing fog, I ended up um, being placed in what's known as the Priestley Centre of climate sciences so that was just the subdivision of my department that I was placed in which then meant that through that I ended up doing a lot of I ended up coming across a lot of climate scientists scientists who did a lot of other interesting work and uh, that's how I kind of shimmed my way into climate sciences. (laughs) Well I think you make fog sound interesting Um, maybe just to lure the next generation of fog scientists in we need uh, some big fog disaster movie like fog <laughs> oh my god so the day guy, after fog morrow <laughs> oh my gosh so there's a guy called simon clark who if you don't follow him i highly recommend he is uh he did his phd in atmospheric sciences and he is a science communicator and he recently did a reaction to a movie called geostorm which is on the list of movies as atmospheric scientists that you know are going to be bad. And his reactions to some of the physics was hilarious. <laughs> um, my favourite one, though, because everybody goes, oh, did you ever get into climate sciences because the day after tomorrow? I'm like, yes, because a movie that essentially says that we have a sudden freezing <laughs> over the space of two months. Yeah, definitely. That's so realistic. Um, but... In a way, whilst some of these like disaster movies are terrible, mm-hmm. but they do get people to start thinking about things like climate, they start thinking, yes, it's an extreme worst case scenario over the top, but then could something like that actually happen? And then I guess it's a way of essentially communicating a very key message, mm-hmm. even if it's done in a way that is a bit ridiculous and trying to win an Oscar. Even though some of these movies, the acting is so terrible that they shouldn't even be nominated for an Oscar. I've heard from so many paleontologists that they got into um, into fossils because of Jurassic Park, or archaeologists who got into archaeology because of uh, Indiana Jones. Yeah, I mean that said though, and I'm going to say this: like I love Jurassic Park. I know it's not realistic, but I still think it's a good movie. <laughs> but I am also I'm also aware that. Um, I think there is a, so a podcast that I listened to um, called Why Are You a Doctor Yet? Uh, discussed this idea of like watching science movies for the sake of watching science movies. And there's some scientists who go in there to basically break down the science as much as they can. And then other people who are like, we're scientists, but we're going to essentially stop the element of disbelief. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times when I go and watch these movies, I just go, 
I know the science is incorrect, but I'm going to just go in there and just enjoy the show. And that's sort of the approach that I now take with a lot of things, especially in popular media, because otherwise you get tired and stressed. And I'm oh, like, yeah. <laughs> You've got to turn your brain off at some points. Oh, totally agreed. And like, it's weird because I do so much science communication outside of work that it can be very, the, the risk that you have is that you never shut your brain off. Mm-hmm. And now I've got to the stage where I'm like, I've now put a kind of, I literally have to physically go, stop doing this because this is considered as work. This is not considered as just strolling for your timeline because you're still thinking about how you're engaging with people. That is work. Stop. <laughs> now, speaking of your science, um, have you made any ma- major discoveries that you're really proud of or minor discoveries? So the one discovery that I would have said that I'm quite proud of is this idea of how we can improve aerosol representation in fog simulations. So I need to kind of give a bit of a like fog 101 lesson. Mm -hmm. Aerosols are small um, airborne particles in the air. And some of these aerosols will allow for condensation to occur with them under the right atmospheric conditions. So by right atmospheric conditions, if it's really humid, then you will then have water vapor condensing on some of these aerosols in order for that air parcel or that bit of air to stabilize essentially. So you can have an increase in humidity in two ways. You can either have warm humidity, so that's something that you get in like the tropics, and then you then get cold humidity. And cold humidity tends to usually happen when your temperature decreases so much that you then essentially have what's known as saturation occurring. So aerosols are important for fog because with aerosols, you then have fog droplets and then the number of fog droplets will then determine how thick the fog becomes. That process is known as aerosol activation. However, most models don't account for aerosol activation when simulating fog. And so hence what you're finding is that um, they predict the incorrect, so they will assume an X number of drops but the number of droplets will determine how thick the fog will become. But you see, so you never ever capture that transition from a thin fog to a thick fog. Oh. And what will happen is that if you do account for aerosols, most models are designed for convective clouds, so like cumulative clouds. Mm-hmm. However, with fog, um, convection doesn't happen. It's a completely different physical process. So what my work did was basically account for that physical process I designed a model that allowed me to account for that physical process. And I was able to show that by accounting for that physical process, you go from a thin fog to a thick fog better, meaning that you can forecast that transition a lot better. So to kind of summarize, physics was incorrect. I fixed the physics, which now means that I can now go from a thin fog to a thick fog using an aerosol activation scheme. That's to kind of summarize my work. That was the big one because that took me a long time to get. Now, when you say thin fog versus thick fog, uh, would a thin fog be that two light post um, distance or yeah. would a thick fog be two light post? So a thin fog would usually be two um, light post distance. Okay. A thick fog is less than that. Oh, wow. Um, so in some places like, um, so the work that I did looked at fog in the UK. 
but there are some places where there may be high levels of pollution so an example being delhi which is the work that i now delhi india which is where my work is now looking at where there have been people who will say that they can't see the person in front of them because mm. the fog is that thick and that would be considered as thick fog or extreme thick fog but it's going from when you can see stuff to when you can barely see stuff to when you can't see stuff it's that transitional period that's never usually captured um it was difficult to work out but i solved it i feel and now i'm at a point where i'm about to submit a paper based on that work so that's hopefully going to be submitted next week that will then go from review i'm hoping the reviews don't destroy it and then fingers crossed it will be a published piece of work either later this year early next year oh well congratulations you'll have to uh, let me know when it comes out <laughs> thank you and i'll let you know when it comes out um i think the problem is is that i'm so close to the work now that i'm at that stage where so here's the thing about science mm-hmm. when you find the discovery so when I found the discovery three years ago, I was super excited about it. I was like, oh my gosh, I've discovered something that's really big, it's really cool. Um, three years later, I am now at that point where I'm like, um, I don't see the excitement anymore. <laughs> and um, because I don't see the excitement anymore, I feel like trying to sell my science to other people can be quite difficult. Mm. But I think what I'm now finding is that through that one piece, it's now kind of expanded other bits of work that I can look at. One thing I find, so in meteorology, you have different types of meteorologists. Mm. You've got the observational scientists. So the ones, they're the ones who go out on the field, collect data based on different weather systems and they try to use that to then allow us modelers, so that's the second half, to then verify the kind of theories. Now, there are some observations that are very difficult to collect, and so hence, modeling allows you to explore those areas. An example being, aerosol measurements are very difficult to collect, generally speaking, but you can assume some aerosols and you can model that um, in different weather systems. Likewise, there are certain things that are very difficult to sort of conceptualize modeling. So observations allow us to kind of like help us guide where we want to go. It's kind of a two-way process. Mm-hmm. Within the modeling bit, then you've then got two camps. So you've got the people who do like the kind of modeling work, and you've then got the people who do the more theoretical work. I fall into the theoretical category because it goes back to me doing my degree and then you can go back a bit to me doing my a-levels to me doing my gcse's it's this idea of i have always been intrigued about how the world works and how we can use a set of equations essentially to model that world and one of my favorite examples of this was in my degree i actually had the opportunity to do a course called mathematical biology where in this one particular case we had a case example of a herd of fish-eating dinosaurs decided to come along. How would you model that as a predator-prey model? Now, as a ridiculous as an example was, it's one of the examples that I talk about in a lot of talks because it's stuck in my mind. And it made me go, if you're able to model something like that, mm. then how would we then apply that to 
the work that I do. So it's more, we've got fog, we've, we've modeled it like this, we fixed this bit of physics, we've now seen this, how can we improve this bit? How can we improve this bit, et cetera, et cetera. Interesting. It's, yeah, it, it, um, it, atmospheric science always boggles my mind because it, there's so much going on, but I mean, I guess you just got to chip away at it bit by bit. Yeah, and uh, there are some brilliant atmospheric scientists out there. We're at a point where what's interesting is that atmospheric sciences and climate sciences used to be seen as two very separate disciplines. Mm. Uh, for a very long time, people used to associate atmospheric sciences as the now and then climate sciences as the future. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that the two fields are merging more and more. And the reason being is because climate and climate change is something that's impacting us now. Mm -hmm. So we can't see them as two separate disciplines. It's, and that's why I say that I'm an atmospheric and climate scientist because on the one hand, my research at the moment is now looking at how we can improve fog broadcasting over Delhi, India. But the other side of my work is to look at how we can use climate change information to ensure, um, to ensure that when we communicate it, we have maximum impact on different demographics. So that is a piece of work that I got into probably two years ago. And I thoroughly enjoyed it because I like talking to people as you can gather in this podcast. <laughs> Now, that leads me to my, my next question. How does a boy from Leeds uh, get into studying fog in Delhi? <laughs> so, the general gist of it was that, so, Delhi has had a fog problem for many, 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 many years. Mm -hmm. And the general, and the reasoning for it is that because of where Delhi is located, uh, relative to India, um, they get bands of moistures coming over, which is known as a Western disturbance. That's the easiest way to kind of summarize it. Now, Delhi also has high levels of pollution and high levels of pollution in the right atmospheric conditions. So by the right atmospheric conditions, I mean the opportunity that you can reach saturation would then result in you having fog. So what happened was, is that the Met Office had been working with partners in India and then they had a funding call about this time last year mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. they were like, we would like to have some researchers look at fog in India. Now, coincidentally, I also happen to be a fog person. <laughs> and then there's a guy called Daniel Smith who's based at the University of East Anglia who is also another fog person. So me and him, combined with our relative supervisors, we all put in a bid for this pot of money. And so far the project is going quite well. Uh, we've been able to identify some really key results, but I'm not putting anything on record because we're in that kind of, is it true phase? And because it's in, the, in its true phase, we don't want to state something and it's actually totally incorrect. That's totally fair. <laughs> yes. Um, so that is one half of my project. And then the second half, which um, I think I mentioned quite briefly, is I do a lot of public engagement work. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the more recent projects that I've started and is still going on is how has the public's attitudes to climate change varied during the COVID-19 pandemic? 
Mm-hmm. Now, back in February of this year, um, climate change, um, they did a poll, I think in New York, where they showed that climate change was second in most people's priority list. Um, and so the original motivation behind this was that when the media were talking about the pandemic, they also discussed that air quality has improved significantly because people are driving less because most people are working from home. Mm-hmm. And even though society is slowly opening up, people are less likely to go out, for example. People are driving less, people are flying less. That's just what's happening. Now, I um, may have had a glass of wine talking to a friend about this. And we were like, well, it would be quite interesting to see how people's attitudes of climate change have changed during this period. Because as scientists, we can be very top down with the way how we communicate information. We feel that because we're the experts, we also know the best way of delivery. But actually, I do argue that the idea of having the public's views determine how we do science is also just as important, if not more important in some cases. And the other issue with, and the reason why I think I was motivated to do this work is that whenever we do communicate climate change, it can be from a very white middle-class male voice. It's this idea that ice caps are melting, it's this idea that we're having extreme weather events. It's, we're having all of these things happening. But to the standard non-climate scientist who is an inner city London kid, they may not necessarily connect to that. Mm-hmm. So what I'm now doing is now we've been able to show that even though people may not necessarily care about climate change. So we did a survey, we asked about 200 people. And although it was a very small sample, for those people who didn't care about climate change, they still felt that there was a link between the improvement on air quality and the potential slowing down of climate change. And that's a very key result because if people are starting to think that, how can we then use that information to then essentially change our strategy for climate change communications? And so that's sort of the piece of work that I've been working on in addition to my postdoc. And I find that quite intriguing because people are set in their opinions Mm -hmm. and those opinions can be um interesting and that's what i'm going to say on that topic well no it's absolutely um appropriate that you bring that up uh one of the other people that i was interviewing was talking about a study that said that um people develop their opinions very early on and Hmm. it doesn't really matter what level of education um, they get to. They usually uh, just reinforce those early early opinions. So yeah. it is very important that someone like you, uh, who has a very high level of knowledge, is working very hard to bring that knowledge down to a level where um, the average person, like myself or, or younger people, can actually understand it. So thank you very much. Yeah. So there's this area of science that I find really fascinating called citizen science. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea that you have a theory, but rather than you doing the work, or you solely doing the work, you get the public involved. So an example being that at the University of Leeds, there's a person called Kirsty Pringle, who is an expert in citizens and science in that she will do air quality public engagement events with kids and get them to 
measure what the air quality is in their particular area. Hmm. Now, what I find so fascinating about that is that you could apply citizen science to it in a number of different areas. So in the case of something like climate sciences, one thing that we are aware of is that in urban environments, in order for you to be able to predict what the climate may be in five years down the line, you need to have a better, better resolution, a better resolution of small scale dynamics. And by that, it's you need more accurate measurements of temperature, more accurate measurements of wind, more accurate measurements of humidity. Now, to collect that data, you could do that all automated. But what you could also do as a public engagement event is actually get school kids to collect that data for you. Mm. So you make them go out and you just say, what is the temperature at this time? What is this and what is that? And then you can say, by doing this, it allows us to basically predict what the weather could be and say five years down the line. Mm. And it sounds like, oh, you're just getting people to do our work. But actually what you're doing is you're getting people to care about why we are talking about these things. Um, and this is something I've come across quite recently and I find absolutely fascinating. And the first thing I went from my mind was, how did I not think about this five years ago? This would have been so useful. Um, I'm very pro citizen science. Um, like very, very, very pro citizen science. And I hope that I have a new opportunities to carry on doing it, I guess. Well, it's, it's like what you were saying before about, um, about virtual communications. Uh, it's one of those things where uh, when you realize how easy it is, um, you, you say, why didn't I think of this before? Mm. Uh, but yeah, you have to see it sometimes to understand it. <laughs> yeah, and that's something that's quite important, I guess. I think it's one of those I think for me, the only reason I never thought about it was because I've never come across it, I guess. And then when I did come across it, I was like, oh. So like in my PhD viber, for example, which went relatively well, mm -hmm. there was one question that they asked me, which I was like, huh? And it wasn't so much I didn't know the answer. It was just more of all of the questions that I thought they would ask me. That was the one thing that hadn't even come across my mind of something they would ask me about and so it stumped me for about five minutes like I was silent for five minutes which anybody who knows me me being silent for more than five minutes is hard um, but again I think that's what I find so fascinating about science is that I come across different people with different opinions and different ideas and it then allows me to then go, how can I then expand my own work? So therefore it's either more inclusive or I account for an idea that I haven't thought about. Um, with the discovery that I had a few, a year ago, well, three years ago, but then finalized it last year, the idea came from, I came to the full solution because I was um, having a drink with a mate and we were talking and he was discussing stuff that he was doing in his own personal work. And I went, wait a second, I could apply that same theory to my work. And then when I figured it out, I was like, I can finish my PhD now. It is done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's the that was eureka in the moment. bathtub moment, right? Huh? It's the eureka in the bathtub moment, right? <laughs> yes. And I had too many of those eureka in the bathtub moments last summer. That's all I can say. Like there was one point where, um, I remember going, oh, I could do this. 
but if I do this, this could solve the problem. And it did. And I went, I'm so glad I went ahead with it because it then made um, defending my PhD a lot easier because I felt more confident in my own science. Because um, the fact is, is that everybody goes, everybody, so there will be listeners here who are in the midst of writing up a PhD. And the one piece of advice that I'll give you is, you know, the PhD is finished when you have enough to say, I am done with this theory. Because you could keep going on and on and exploring things in more detail or running things in more in a high resolution or collecting more data. But for me, my the point that I realized I was finished was when I went, I have a complete piece of work based on the knowledge here. I'm aware that there are other areas I could explore. But if I do that, then that requires me to do six more months work. And that's when I went, I am finished. <laughs> that was a nice point to hit. <laughs> yeah, when the, uh, the frustration and the satisfaction almost balance each other out. <laughs> yeah. And I hear this from people who write books on the general, general basis, mm. in that um, one of my best mates, she's a writer, and one of the things that she says is that it's not the case that it's the best piece of work in the end. It's when you finished it, it's, it's because you've gone, I've had enough. Yeah, <laughs> because then it gives you an opportunity to write a second book. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> now, um, most of your work is done in in the computer lab. Um, yes. But do you ever get out into the field and do field work at at all? Occasionally, <laughs> I say occasionally with a like four question marks after that. Um, so. Prior to me starting the PhD, I went to the field site where they had the first field campaign for the... Let me rephrase that. Prior to me starting the PhD, I went to the first field campaign meeting based on the data that I would be using in my PhD. And that was an opportunity for me to see what measurements were being taken, what equipment was being done and everything. But that was just me kind of going there as like an observer. Um, throughout the PhD, I had two opportunities to go and do field work. So the first time um, I went to what's known as an IOP or an intense observational period. Hmm. And what we did is that we collected fog measurements. So by fog measurements, we collected um, droplet size distributions of the fog droplets. We collected things such as humidity temperature we had the tether balloon so a tether balloon is essentially think of a balloon but much bigger and you can put like observational material on it and um, observational instrumentation rather and it will go up and down through the fog layer so it will then capture like the vertical profiles mm. so i did that but here's the thing fog happens at the night and so i didn't plan through this properly because with fog, we didn't know if it was going to happen or not. You can't just sleep and then hope for the best. It's a, you still have to carry on with your day. And then if they go, fog is happening tonight, go. Then you just go for it. So thankfully, the picture has disappeared. But somebody had actually taken a photo of me, had me falling asleep at 4 a.m. in the morning. And the observations were still being collected at this point. Um, so that was my first um, kind of like life as an observational scientist. The second time I went to a place called Arran, which is an isle off the west of Scotland. 
it was a two week film campaign or more a two week mock film campaign. It was trying to get modelers like myself to understand how observational science can be quite difficult. And I can tell you that after doing that for two weeks, observational science is very difficult. (laughs) And uh, I have a much better appreciation for observational science, but it's not for me personally. But I have a really big appreciation for it because I think sometimes uh, as modelers, we can get into this attitude of going, oh, the observations are incorrect or oh, something is missing or oh, that happened. One of my favourite papers, I think they said was a bunny rabbit had eaten the wire. So therefore, all of the observations after this point cannot be used. (laughs) But it's things like that, that until you experience it, you don't have that appreciation. So yes, I do go into the field very often, but not very often. For me, most of my work predominantly involves doing computer modelling, being in meetings to discuss that computer modelling, and then actually going and talking to people about like different projects and stuff. So, I mean, social science field work, that's probably the most relevant that I do at the moment, I'd say. Um, yeah, the reason why I asked is because I've, I have talked to a few people who've done field research uh, in other countries uh, uh-huh. to Canada and even like somewhere like the UK, uh, it is very different from uh, field research in Canada. Uh, in the UK, mm-hmm. you have to worry about bunnies chewing through your wires. And here in Canada, you have to worry about grizzly bears uh, mauling your camp. <laughs> <laughs> See, no, do you know what, though? I mean, and this again, I'm going to sound so salty saying this. So I'm in a department that um, has work in meteorology across the world. So you've got different bits of Africa. Uh, people do stuff in Canada. Some people do stuff in Australia and there's stuff in the southern ocean so therefore they get the opportunity to do field work in these relative areas i was in a field site in the uk so that was the excitement that i had for field work (laughs) and i remember like again it makes me feel like fog is just the forgotten cousin (laughs) because everybody was like oh i'm gonna be doing like airborne measurements of like temperature across Lake Victoria and Kenya and I'm going to be going and taking like glacier measurements in the Himalayas and I'm there going I'm taking humidity measurements in Cardington UK Uh, (laughs) and I sound so salty I guess what if people hate me people hate me I'm just saying (laughs) (laughs) but um you do clearly love your work uh what's your favorite part of your work um I think for me my favorite the favorite my favorite part of the work that I do is probably the communicating aspect mm-hmm. so I am of the opinion that science isn't science until you get people to care about it mm. so I absolutely love getting people to care about the work that I do. That's the bit of science that I absolutely enjoy. I think that when I look back at all of the activities that I did during my time, um, during my PhD, I go, what did I enjoy? And so one of my favourite presentations that I gave was to try and get people to understand what aerosol activation was. So what I had is I had a rubber band ball and I had a pile of blue tack. 
and the way I described it is that imagine that you're in a room and this room is an air parcel and as this room and this room can get colder so the reason why the room will get colder is because a typical way in the atmosphere that a parcel will get colder is that it goes up into the atmosphere mm. and as it gets higher up in the atmosphere less pressure is exerted on the air parcel it will expand it will get colder mm. So imagine that's happening in this room and the blue tack are water vapor and the, and the rubber band ball was aerosol. And if you hit humidity um, saturation, what you'll then find is that the water vapor will then want to attract to the aerosol under the right conditions. That was one of my favorite presentations because I got people who didn't know anything about aerosol to actually start caring about fog. Ooh. And I actually won a prize for that. Ooh. And the reason I'm laughing, I'll tell you why, is because um, I didn't expect to win anything after this. Um, and so when they said my name, the reason why people remember why I won is because I swore at the back of the room because I was in shock. And then I walked up and my PI was a few rows away from me and he was just laughing. And I went, you know what, I'm just going to walk and get my handshake, and get my Amazon voucher. Um, but now what I find is that whenever, so I've done a number of different panels, different committees. Um, I was the co-chair of the Royal Meteorological Society's student conference a couple of, a few years back. And what I found when I was judging people's presentations was, why should I care? Mm -hmm. And if you can't tell me in 30 seconds why I should care about your research, then chances are that I'm probably going to switch off. So whenever I get people, whenever I deliver a talk about my research, um, depending on what stream of research, fog is important because poor fog forecasting can result in cancelled planes, um, impacts on human health and safety. Um, Fog, um, climate change communications are important because if you don't communicate your message clearly enough, then people don't care, and then hence they just carry on as normal. So as to adapting and talking about it with people, and so that's the bit that I absolutely love, uh, which is why I do so much science communication. And now I'm slowly hitting the phase where I'm now trying to combine my baking and my science communication, and merge it into one, and. <laughs> part of the reason I've kept it kind of low key is because I'm trying to figure out really nice examples of ways of how to bring the two areas together. I mean, I've got a couple of examples, but yeah. Um, now, science communication is incredibly important. Um, <clears throat> something you, you mentioned, I think, in the other inter interview um, was that uh, you find that it's easier to communicate with uh, people who are, are more like ourselves right mm -hmm. um and so for like someone like me who's a white middle class um individual i might have trouble reaching a more uh urban inner city london uh population yeah. um today we are celebrating scientists of color do you find that uh that that's a niche that isn't really being serviced um communicating to person young persons of color Yes, and I'll explain why. So the idea of 
somebody who was black British doing a PhD didn't really occur to me until my chemistry teacher, Dr. Bennett, um, was my chemistry teacher for a year and a half. And she had a PhD in biochemistry from the University of York. That for me was the first example of me going, actually, if I wanted to, I could do a PhD. Because it was something that she spoke about her research. And I found it so fascinating that that's something you could do. Because up until that point, um, there's this assumption that if you go into sciences, you're going to go into medicine and that's it. Or finances, which isn't a science, but that's sort of kind of like attitude that you get growing up with. And then as I got further through my kind of like academic career, realised there aren't many black British people here. And I say black British people specifically because that's the experience that I've grown up with. But what I found was when I delivered a talk recently to a charity called Generating Genius, which had um, an array of black British kids, I found that by me mentioning that I was half Ghanaian, half Jamaican who grew up in London, that aspect of relatability, they could go, actually, I relate to that. And so therefore they were more willing to engage with what I was saying. Mm. However, the problem is, is that there were so many barriers that go back as to why the representation of black British scientists is so poor towards the upper end. You, let's take, a child who is black British born in the UK for example by the time that they are four even if the parents are well intended you already have other parents questioning why that kid is doing what they're doing why are they louder than the other children not mm. thinking about cultural impacts by the time they reach a level where they do their primary school exams you already have some teachers unconsciously marking them down on points that they wouldn't have apart and this is statistically been shown in comparison to the other peers mm -hmm. by the time they reach secondary school they may already be plonked with a learning difficulty because they question why things have been done the way that they've been done by the time they get to 16 they're already been told that they're not good enough to do certain subjects so by the time they get to the point where they're allowed to apply for a phd they already have so many things that they've had to work through that they may go actually i'm not going to deal with this i can't deal with this and so i've now found that because i'm one of a few black british um, academics in the UK mm -hmm. um, and I was very hesitant at first to say well if I'm a postdoc does that make me an academic and in the end I decided yes because the reality is, is that there aren't many of us out there already mm -hmm. um, and so I do think that representation matters especially when it comes to things like communicating climate change Climate change is something that's going to have an impact on all of us, but in very different ways. In order for us to make sure that that message is clear and that message is impactful, you need to have diversified voices. And that diversified voices isn't only going to happen if we look at each one of these barriers and we figure out a way of how we can address them. It's interesting, uh, you were mentioning how at one, one stage in a child's development, if they're overly inquisitive, uh, they could actually get docked for that. 
uh, hmm. whereas being inquisitive is exactly what we want for right. scientists. So uh, it really is a weeding out process at, at a very yeah. early stage. Um, I went to a secondary school that up until the age of 60, they pushed this idea that you can do whatever you want. You're, if you want to pursue this, you can pursue this. If you want to pursue that, you can pursue that. And up until that point, there were no setbacks that I had. It was only until I was applying to university that I was told quite directly that I wasn't good enough to apply to certain universities. Mm. So much so that the, the rejection that I received from one of my universities wasn't from the university itself, but it was from my sixth from rejecting the application from even being sent off. And I look back on it because I'm going, yes, I may have not had the perfect track record, but the reality is that I know people who've had worse records, who've had the opportunity to apply. And yet for me, you've essentially put that barrier in. Now, for a very long time, I then felt that maybe it was the case that I was just unlucky with the cases, the situation that I had. But when I then noticed that all of the peers that I had who weren't black were able to then apply for stuff like normal, no questions asked, but the only people who had hesitations were the other black kids. I then went to them, asked myself, is this an unconscious bias that I'm not facing at the moment? Now, it's really interesting because in the US, it's very clear that there is a race issue. And it's something that um, one of my really good mates, she was like, we are very vocal about that this is a thing that needs to be addressed. But here in the UK, there's this attitude that racism isn't a thing or we are a colorblind society. And that's really dangerous because when you do then talk about race, people then think that you're being over the top or you're making a situation out of absolutely nothing. But then having, so I recently read a book by um, Rennie Ed Lodge called Why I No Longer Talk to White People About Race. What I absolutely loved about that book was, funnily enough, the history chapter where I learned more about my black British history in that chapter than I had in my entire schooling. Mm -hmm. Because whenever black history is ever taught at school, it's always taught from the concept or the perspective of an American. But it's never spoken about from a British perspective. And there were events that I weren't aware had happened and I feel that with that education, people would then be more willing to have conversations like this. Now, to go back to your representation question, the one thing that I'm really glad about is that there are some places where they are still having these conversations. So in my department, they're actually looking at how they can improve the diversity of black and ethnic minority um, staff members. Um, for me, I'm focusing on the B within that acronym, but I'm glad that people are now actually having this discussion because five years ago, the discussion wasn't there. And then I came along as the only black British person in my department. And then five years later, I am still the only black British person in my department. And if there's anybody out there who is in the School of Earth and Environment at the University of Leeds, I am calling you out here who is black British, please let me know because I'll happily have a conversation with you. But I'm not aware of anybody and that's a concern. And we're one of the largest geoscience schools in the country. Mm -hmm. 
Well, absolutely. And it's the same with um, our own department here at UBC. Um, we've recognized that we are, are, are a very white department. Um, mm. Yeah, and so it's, it's one of the reasons why I, I had to go all the way to Leeds to um, <laughs> get, get the... Um, I, I found, so there has been a brilliant movement that started on Twitter, which I'm going to call it the Black N black in blank where the blank is a different size mm -hmm. it started off from what i recall and if i get this incorrectly please don't drag me i'm sorry um black and bird week um, was the first one that i actively remember and then so far on twitter i've seen black in bird week i've seen black in neuro i've seen black in botanical week but what i absolutely love and we've also got black and geoscience week coming up in september of this year now what I absolutely love about it is that it's celebrating black people within these fields, which is something that doesn't happen very often. And whilst there's been a lot of positivity around, there have been some people who've gone, why do you need your own separate week to do stuff? And to that, I go, the fact that I didn't know that there was these groups that have been active demonstrates a need for this mm -hmm. but it also highlights the fact that departments need to actually start making change and start making change in order for us to look at these problems we cannot be i absolutely hate the idea that um as a white person you can go to a play a country within africa and you essentially come up as the expert to the scientists out there, but not also thinking that they also have probably more of a valid approach to what you're trying to solve. And that's only going to improve itself when people have these conversations. Um, my department are doing stuff to do that. I'm aware that Oxford have also bring fence funding for BME PhD students. So they've got a few places especially for that. And these aren't revolutional things, but they need to happen in order for us to actually get to a point where we can tackle these really difficult questions. Now, th this is actually something we've been talking about. How, um, what recommendations would you have for how to um, help get uh, scientists of color up into the higher echelons of academia? How do we break this? This white wall. So, oof. sorry. So, be, before you can get people higher up the rank, you need to start bringing people in from PhD onwards. Uh, when we looked at the stats in our department, we found that apart from myself, in the last ten years, nobody who was Black British applied to do a PhD in Earth and atmospheric sciences at the University of Leeds. So the first question we then had to ask was, why is that the case? And so when I was applying for internships, jobs, my half a day in investment banking, <laughs> there were diversity schemes that were, some of them focused on just black people, some of them focused on people of color. And I was very hesitant at first to apply for these schemes because I felt that I should be judged based on my merit as opposed to the colour of my skin. But the reality is, is that if those schemes didn't exist, 
um, people of color, especially black people, because they've been told from a very young age that you're not good enough, they then are less likely to even consider that this is a thing that they can apply for. Mm. And so the first thing that I would make as a recommendation is that they introduce a similar kind of scheme to funding calls um, when it comes for people to apply to PhDs. The second thing that also needs to be done is that just because you've got a bunch of brand new, like let's take, let's say five cranes were to walk from my department. That's great in everything. Mm-hmm. If I wasn't as strong-willed as I was, I would hear some of the microaggression comments about, oh, you don't seem to usually be, we don't get many black people here, or, oh, let me touch your hair, or, oh, let me do this, or, oh, you look like, insert black person here, but you don't have no resemblance to them whatsoever. So the second thing that needs to be done is that for white people, they need to address their unconscious biases, but do it in a way that they actively want to engage. I feel we actually, and I found this out, we actually have an unconscious bias module that staff members have to take. But all you need to do is click through some boxes, get a certificate, and even pass your unconscious bias training. For me, what I found that was really useful was to get everybody to read Renee Edge Lodge's book, um, which I still have a copy here. that's why I stopped talking to white people. Yes. yes. And that was a very good introduction to the idea of unconscious bias, I believe. Mm-hmm. And there are people out there who do like courses on this stuff. And then the other thing as well is if you are getting speakers in, it's don't just pick your friends, pick people that represent what science is today. Mm-hmm. I feel that sometimes they go, we need to find very senior people within the field. But the reality is, is that very senior people in the field are all white. And so hence, because of that, you're never going to get representation up in the upper levels. And if you do get people who are not white in the upper levels, there's so few of them that what you then risk is then burdening them with all of the talks so much so that they don't get their research. So actually look at trying to diversify your speakers, but also realise that somebody who is a postdoc or somebody who's in their final years of their PhD probably has as much of valuable information to your research group um, in addition to somebody who is a top professor in their field. Those are the two things that feel need to happen because by then doing that, you've got people who then want to apply to do PhDs. And then when they do PhDs, they feel that the option of them progressing then carries on, which then means that they are more likely to consider things like postdoc and then traditional academic routes. And even in non-academic roles, which still require you to have a PhD, then that option is still there too. Those are some really good suggestions. And um, yeah, those are really clear. So thank you for that. I'll pass those on. And I'm just going to make this very clear. If for whatever reason people want to have a discussion with me, you can find my webpage if you type in my name and you can discuss this via email because I will happily have a conversation with people about this. <laughs> Be careful about encouraging conversations over the internet. <laughs> oh, of course. Um, maybe you ended that bit up, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, you talked about uh, some of the... the um, 
discouraging uh, comments you got uh, going into the field. Um, and you've given me some great suggestions on how to uh, promote diversity at the top, but have you had any issues with uh, the color of your skin uh, within the department or within this field? Hmm. I have to really think about this one. For me personally, I've not had a... Hmm. So there was one incident, um, actually funnily enough, prior to me starting my PhD. Uh, so, for context, I'm an inner city London kid, okay? I'm just putting that as a disclaimer because <laughs> I need to, it makes sense for the context. Um, the field campaign that happened, happened to be in Wales. Now, Wales is one part of the United Kingdom that is still uh, bilingual. And where the field campaign happened, literally it was on the border of Wales. So it didn't feel like I was going to another country. It literally felt like I was going to, an, like, you could walk and you'd end up back in England, kind mm -hmm. of thing. Now, I wanted to get some cash out. And also for context, I was doing a summer blog. Now I went to get some cash out and it gave me the option of either having the cash machine in either Welsh or in English. Because I'm doing a summer blog and because I want to experience, like talk about my experiences that summer, I get my phone out and take a photo. Some guy from the pub, literally like across from the cash point, puts his pipe down, storms up to me, and my supervisors, for context, are also in this pub. So they can see this whole incident. Mm -hmm. He storms up to me and he goes, Oi. I'm like, yes. He goes, why are you trying to hack the machine? And my response was, um, hack? I was just boggled more than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, he goes, you're trying to hack the machine. You're taking photos. I see what you were doing. I was like, I'm doing a summer blog and I'm taking photos so I can put them on my blog. Here are the other photos that I was doing. And I was going through my phone this whole time. And he was just being really accusational, this entire conversation. So I switched the conversation narrative where I then went, here's a question for you. If I wasn't black, would you be having this conversation? And he completely paused. And he went, no, if you were white, I would be having this exact conversation. I was like, that's not what I asked. I said, if I wasn't black, would you be having this conversation? And he just went, I'll just go away from the cash machine and he walked back. That was probably the one case that I had. Now, I don't know. There are so many things you could decipher from that. Was it because I was taking a photo of the cash machine? Was it because I was the only black person in this entire village? Was it because the timing was that he probably felt that somebody was hacking the machine in the past? There are so many things that could have been in discussion about that, but that was the first time I feel I felt that the color of my skin potentially could have dictated that. And the reason why I started second question guessing myself was that as a black person, I don't ever want to feel that people are being discriminatory because of the color of my skin. Mm. But the reality is that if you already stand out like a sore thumb then you end up finding that people will then find reasons to then kind of pick at you. Um, there have been cases where there are some people who hear the way that I talk. I mean, I've got a very strong London accent. I, <laughs> I am a bit of a goofy person because I don't take life that seriously. 
And there are some people who will pass me up from opportunities, who will pass me up for this, who will pass me up for that. And for a very long time, I just didn't feel like I fitted in. I literally felt there's an image that went around where it's like you're in an office environment and you've got Big Bird who's just sitting there. And I felt like Big Bird for a very long time. And for context, I'm also wearing a yellow t-shirt at the same time as well. So viewers, listeners, imagine that. Um, I just felt off, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it was only until I got towards the end of my PhD and I started to be more serious and I also found that I wasn't the only black person in my department anymore. So there was a project that happened where they had more black people coming to the department that I started to go, no, it's more that you just don't get me more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And the reason I told this story, I guess, is that when you are the only person in a room that fits a box, it can be very difficult to feel like you're going to be taken seriously. So also just for transparency reasons, I'm not only black, but I'm also queer. And that makes it very difficult to navigate because um, essentially I also get the compounded racism within the queer community on top of everything else and that is a very difficult space to navigate especially as a scientist sometimes. Well, I can definitely empathize with what you're saying. Um, uh, I mean I'm also a queer person and the day before I started with the Department of Earth, Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences I remember um, actually I was on the bus on my way to my first day and mm -hmm. I thought what have I done? I'm going to be the only gay in the village um, surrounded by all these geologists and uh -huh. Uh, it's going to be not going to be a very welcoming place and that's actually part of the reason why i started this podcast series because i found um i was surprised by how diverse the department is in some ways uh, we've got a lot of women we've got a lot of queer people um and and um diversity in research we've got atmospheric scientists it's not just um um geologists we've got mm -hmm. oceanographers and paleontologists uh, but what we do lack in diversity is visual diversity and to have that um uniqueness on display every single day like you can't necessarily see that that i'm queer um it's not as blatant um but you can't really hide the fact that you're the only black person in a room full yeah. of white people and because, it's, yeah. well, realize you're not the anomaly uh the department mm. is the anomaly <laughs> yeah because it's interesting you say that because when i mentioned originally that i was the only black British person in the department the first question i get is but you're not the only black person in the department. Now let's just put some context into this. There was a project called SWIFT. Mm -hmm. I cannot remember the acronym for my life, but the general mm -hmm. gist of it was that it was looking at improving forecasting techniques across different bits of Africa. So there's a team that look at East Africa, a team that look at West Africa. There's now a team that look at the Sub-Saharan Africa belt. Um, but the point being is that it's all kind of addressing a bigger, like the bigger overarching goal is forecasting techniques. Now, the reason I mentioned that is because as part of that project, they then also had a knowledge exchange aspect in that they had scientists who would come from different parts of Africa to come and work in the UK. Mm -hmm. But so what people will then do is just clump all of the black scientists into one. Now, we do have that relatability aspect in that we are black 
and we are in a predominantly white field so because of that people may not take us as seriously at times but our experiences are so different in that i grew up in london and then throughout my university education onwards i was usually one of a few of a handful of black people of black people there um and you may not have that experience if you did your university education in ghana for example so like my younger cousin um is now doing her law degree here in the UK but back when she was in Ghana she said the idea of me being the only black person in the room was unheard of and so what some departments will do is that they'll go well you're not the only black person therefore it's not an issue when in actual fact it is an issue because the majority of white people who do geosciences in our department are British born or have grown up within the UK so why is that then a different scenario for me, if that makes sense? Absolutely. And it's, it's uh, probably the same in Canada as well. Hmm. Yeah. And so that's why when I did my PhD, I don't think I was that vocal about it. But then as I got further in and then I came towards the end and I started the postdoc, I then went, I have a year and a half to make my voice heard. And um, we've now got a group called the Black Meteorologists. Um, so the reason that group started was the day after my Viva, uh, we had our department away day. And I was quite hungover. So <laughs> for context, I didn't drink anymore. But at the time, I was still drinking. I was really hungover. And everybody, when I went to this away day, everybody was like, why are you here? You, you've just passed your mind me. Why are you still working? And I went, because I have a presentation to deliver. Mm. If I hadn't gone to that away day, I wouldn't have come across a brilliant scientist called Marjan, who is a master's student, who is um, Afro-American. Um, and because of the conversation that we had there, it then resulted in us finding another person called Rhea, who is a black British meteorologist who just finished her undergrad. But through that, we were able to form a group and now add more people to that initial group. So the reason I mentioned that is because like the world has a weird world way of things, weird way of working. And we were able to like have an aspect of familiarity with all our relative experiences. <laughs> well, I'm glad you found each other and we're able to, to form this group. Um, yeah. Hopefully, um, yeah, hopefully we can get you some members from the, the side of the Atlantic too. Yeah, of course. And that's why I'm really excited for Black and Geoscience Week because I've now come across, I am aware of, um, so in the UK, and I'm going to make another call for this because I don't want to be the only one. If, they, if you can find me another Black British meteorologist or climate scientist who is active in the UK, please tell me because I want to know who this person is. Because the reason I state this is because I don't want to be the only one, but I have a scary feeling that I'm potentially the only one. And that's a very scary feeling because everyone's like, oh my God, you made it. And I'm like, but that shouldn't be the case. And so now I'm like, no, I want more people to come along and be like, hey, join the party kind of thing. <laughs> but in, on the state side, there are so many brilliant black meteorologists that I've come across over the last few months via Twitter. And 
that makes me then go, no, I'm not the anomaly. It's like there are more of us out there. It's just I need to look further afield. Um, I would love it that there are a brilliant group of black uh, meteorologists within this country, uh, black British meteorologists. There are brilliant black um, physicists, uh, biologists, chemists, but meteorology, we can have some love too. And everybody feels that meteorology is just a subset of physics, but actually it's a completely different thing. <laughs> Um, well, hopefully because of your efforts, uh, you know, you'll, you'll grow some up um, through the system. And Fingers crossed. But you're recruit some. Yeah, but I think the only way that we're going to have change happen is that the emotional burden needs to be taken off people of colour and it also needs to be shared with white people. Because there are a number of brilliant black people who do a lot of diversity work but because the white people around them are tone deaf, they essentially make that person do all the work. My department have not been that stupid with me. I give them recommendations mm. and I tell them to off you go. And they're like, what, you're not going to do anything? I'm like, I don't get paid for this. So because of that, I'm not doing it. Mm -hmm. And I make that very clear. And I say this to, and, I, and I'll say this on record, if you are an ethnic minority who is doing diversity work or you're doing it for free, either one, get yourself compensated, or two, just give recommendations and get white people to do it because it then stops white people from not holding themselves accountable. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, there, there was a, a, a scandal about that too out of the Human Rights Museum, and I heard the exact same recommendation. Hmm. Um, don't it, let management take care of it. Uh, let them hear your voice, but don't let them make you do all the work. Correct. And I think that if it's the case that people need to know where resources are and stuff, I'll happily pour those resources on. Mm -hmm. But it's then not my job to then get those resources and then do like two sentence exec summaries, for example. Exactly. Now, leads are also doing a lot on a much bigger scale, which are also tackling things like research culture. Um, so there's this idea that if you're a PhD student, you should be working till the, like, many hours of the night. If you are, um, if you are a PhD student, you should be accepting that your supervisor can be rude. If you're this, you can do this. If you're that, you can do this. In other lines of work, that is unacceptable. But in academia, it's because it's academia, you can get away with it. Mm -hmm. So they're also looking at addressing it as a much bigger picture. Where I fit into that is now looking at from the perspective of how we can improve Black British representation from postgrad onwards. Um, there's a brilliant person called Mel's who they started a whole campaign called Why Is My Curriculum White at Leeds? And one thing I loved about it was that they were very clear in going, um, this is an issue. Is an issue that needs to be dealt with and change is slowly happening but it still needs to happen that like progress still needs to continue for us to get to a point where people feel comfortable doing a phd is um difficult enough uh not to discourage anyone who's listening uh definitely you know come and do your phd um but of course it's uh even more difficult i'm sure with the extra uh mm. racial uh 
overtones? It's kind of like you doing a PhD is difficult enough, but then when you've got the added layer of having to deal with the social interactions of your colleagues and with people in the field and with people who don't interact with Black British people very often, it can be very difficult to navigate. I I'm fortunate that in my department, I've had a relatively good experience. I'm also aware that in other departments, people have not had a good experience. And I feel that sometimes, so back in December of 2019, I wrote an article about my experiences of being the only black British person in my department, which I was, and I'm putting that on record. And if anybody tries to question me, then I'm like, here are the stats. Um, when I wrote that article, there were some members of my department who went, you did a brilliant thing, but we're not a problem, or there isn't a problem here. And my response was, I feel quite, and the quite with the white in that, um, startled that you think there isn't a problem when I'm the only person here. Because what I don't want to have happen is that I leave the department, because the thing is, is that there are some brilliant people that work at Leeds, there's some brilliant people that work in my department, but I absolutely hate it that we did all of this work to try and improve representation. Then I leave and then basically the door shuts behind me and nobody, everybody has to go through exactly the same struggle that I went through. That is something that I don't want to have happen. Or worse, that they say, well, we had someone of colour, um, therefore we don't have the problem. Yeah, I think that um, so it's interesting about... Um, so part of the re so on the topic of colour, I have found that um, a lot of departments will use terms like BME, BAME, or the new one that I found a few months ago, which is BIPOC. So that's Black, Indigenous, and People of Colour. Thanks. If I've got that correct. Now, the reason why I don't like using acronyms, so I use BME the majority of the time because it in our department, it's a universal problem. But if you are British Indian, the struggles and the barriers that you have will be very different to if you're Black British. But when you then use the term BME, for example, you essentially clump uh, Black and ethnic minorities. Thank you. Um, right, hold on. BME, Black... Oh, so it's black and ethnic minorities, but what? I think I've got the acronym correct. But essentially, it's black and ethnic minorities. Um, but the kind of point that I'm making is that what will, some departments will do is that they'll just clump everybody into the same umbrella and assume that the strategy of getting people of colour is exactly the same if you're black as opposed to if you're, say, Indian. And... I can tell you that my experience of growing up as a black British person is very different to some of my friends who are um, Indian British, for example. And so hence the approach needs to be taken very differently. I love it how in America though, they don't use acronyms. It's if you're black, you're black. If you're Hispanic, you're Hispanic. And whereas in the UK, because there's this idea that race doesn't exist, they just clump everybody in the other category. And I don't think that's good. Well, it's the same when, when we discuss diversity. It's, um, it's usually straight white men and then everyone else. Um, and like I was saying, our department has lots of queer people. We have lots of women, uh, but we do still have issues with diversity because we are um, very, very white. 
Hmm. And what I find sometimes is... <sighs> so, I don't think this is a controversial opinion, but I sometimes find that when somebody is a minority but doesn't belong into an intersection, that they are less likely to voice the opinions of people who are um, who are minorities hmm. and the example being is now when you say intersection yeah so as an so an example you can have queer people but have the privilege of them being white you can have black people who have the privilege of being male but if you then for example are a queer black person then you fall into two intersections so the minority, so I don't have the privilege in the sense that I am queer, but I'm black, but I have a privilege in that I'm a cis male, as an example. And sometimes in pe some people who, and they don't fall into an intersection, but they take on, say, a diversity role within a department, my personal experience is that they don't necessarily advocate for the voices of all people. So it's only in the last few months that because we have people who are in intersections that they are advocating for everybody they are actually trying to go we need to tackle this and the reason i make this as a point is because um so i wrote another article quite recently about being a black queer scientist and what some people will do is that they'll go because i am a gay man i'm a white gay man then i can for example say well this is what we need to work on but they need then essentially eradicate the voices of people who are non-white mm. um i guess the point that i'm trying to make here is is that this is why again i don't like using acronyms or i don't like grouping people into everything because actually then there are actual problems within all of those subsets as well it gets very complicated Basically, the point is that we should all be equal and we should all not have to think about these things, but we do need to think about these things. And for people to say that we shouldn't have to think about these things, I think that's slightly ignorant. I feel like I'm going to be hated after this. <laughs> oh, no. No, no, I, I think you're making some very good points and, and I appreciate you making them. Um, I feel like they do need to be made um, and I appreciate them. Thank you. Um, now, hopefully this doesn't stop me from getting a job in the future, because I promise I'm not a troublemaker. I'm a lovely person. I bake, for crying out loud. I can guarantee everyone out there, based on the previous interview and the, the, um, the pre-chat that we had, uh, Dr. Craig is a lovely person to, to talk to. Excellent. Um, but yeah, I think I do... I'm feeling oddly optimistic. I do think change is going to happen. I do think that people are making steps in the right direction. I do think that white people are amplifying the voices of black people. They are amplifying the voices of people of colour. Um, and I do feel that eventually we will get to a point where actually it doesn't matter what your background is, you can go into whatever subject you want. Um, but in order for us to do that, we need to address these very difficult topics, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Now, um, just pivoting a little bit, uh, mm -hmm. there is a very difficult topic which is impacting all of us, and that is, uh, of course, COVID-19. Um, mm -hmm. Has that impacted your work? Uh, or um, have you been able to keep working through this pandemic? So 
The major impact that I've had is that because I do collaborations with scientists in India, India still are unfortunately still haven't reached their first peak. And oh. so because of that, so if you look at the rate of infection in India in comparison to the UK, they're still rising. And so because of that, um, trips that I had planned to go out there and actually do more collaborations, they've unfortunately been cancelled. Likewise, it's also meant that getting information and data has also been quite difficult at times as well. Um, so that's one aspect. The other aspect as well is that I do a lot of public engagement stuff, which involves having to deal with people. But mm -hmm. if you're not um, out there, then if when the lockdown happened, we couldn't do that type of work. So essentially what we've done is that we've had to kind of adapt the way how we can do stuff. Now, fortunately, we have been able to adapt in some aspects. But there are other aspects where actually we need to figure out how we can get back into the field or actually get back into dealing with people on a more face-to-face -face basis. Um, because I do a lot of outreach stuff as well, we find that students engage better in person than they do over video. So schools are hopefully going to be opening back in a few weeks um, in like a socially distant manner. Therefore, we can at least control um, the rate of infection. And that will then hopefully lead to an opportunity for us to kind of brainstorm what can we do in this sort of setting, I guess. Um, it's been six months. It's still difficult, I guess, but we're adapting and that's the main thing. And I think that for those who, in my, who claim that this is an overnight fix, it's not an overnight fix. Um, we still don't know enough information on coronavirus. We still don't know what the after effects are if you have coronavirus. The reason why we need to ensure that we can contain it is because we don't know what would happen if we had another massive outbreak. Mm -hmm. And that's the main thing. And for kind of a disclaimer, I am not a biologist. I am an atmospheric scientist. However, I do listen to my colleagues who are biologists and I also do do reading in terms of peer reviews and stuff. Um, and that's the way I've currently sort of done it. Unfortunately, I was hoping to go to the States this year, but the reality is that um, the UK are very strict with which countries you can visit and the US, unfortunately, is on the you can't visit list. And if you do, you have to self-quarantine 14 days when you get back. Mm -hmm. Even within Canada, uh, there are quarantine periods within the country when you cross certain provincial boundaries. Um, yeah. I mean, how has it been over in Canada? Uh, it's ticking upward a little bit right now. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure where it'll be at when this podcast gets released, but at the moment it's, it's good, but it's not great. Mm. Mm -hmm. See, because like in the UK, so... Just for context, this is August of 2020. And the reason I say for context is because I read a post by a page that I follow where they decided to reshare their post from January of this year about the pandemic. And we all thought that there was a second pandemic happening and we all got very confused. Um, so in the UK, the rate of infection has sort of steadied, but there's a slight increase. And there are fears that there's going to be a second wave. Um, 
the way how I've currently seen it is that because I'm not a priority, i.e. I don't need to be out and about for the job that I do, I'm making the sensible decision of not necessarily having to go out and like potentially engage with enough people that I could either spread the virus myself or catch the virus. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also washing my hands more than usual. I mean, I washed my hands before, but it turns out people didn't wash their hands. And that was, that is scary because you will be getting other things. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, I'm kind of shocked sometimes by how few people wash their hands. Yeah. Um, We'll leave that conversation right there. <laughs> well, Dr. Craig, uh, those are actually all the questions I have. Um, oh, before I let you go, do you have anything else you want to say? Uh, thank you again for inviting me to do this podcast again. Um, I've had a very pleasant evening being able to discuss my science, my baking. Um, for those who want to follow me, so my Twitter is c underscore poku 93 so that's spelled p-o-k-u and i also have an instagram page where you can follow all of my baking which is poku bakes <laughs> so that's me doing my self-promoting and uh if anybody wants to have any conversations about anything we've discussed just feel free to just drop me a twitter dm and we can go from there excellent well dr craig thank you stay safe uh congratulations on your phd and thank you. Um, Yeah, good luck with your studies. Thank you. Excellent. Right, take care. Thanks for listening to Quarantine Conversations. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash quarantine conversations.